Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 280, The Touring Test, recorded April 8th, 2017, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementopie.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the only place on the internet where geeks rant. I'm your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel, and joining me this week, uh, a day early, are your stalwart co-hosts, your friends and mine, Seth the Gooey Kid Anderson and Miles the Aussie Jenner Wakeham. Hi, gentlemen. Hello, and welcome, everybody. See, we're so early, I was unprepared for my <laughs> intro segue. And I know only 20 more episodes, we get a free cup of coffee, right? Um, sure, why not? Episode um, 300's got to be a celebration. You know, I uh, don't want coffee. I hate coffee. <laughs> All things coffee are bad. Cake? Yeah. Pie? Even my super amazing coffee, he almost, he had to, he had to fight not to spit out. Oh. Um, yeah. You know, hey, it was great if you could just make it where it couldn't taste the coffee at all, you would have something there. Yeah, it's cold water. Um, <laughs> you can do that. Is it that people like coffee or are they addicted to coffee? I'm still trying to work that one out. I mean, they're addicted. It's just like beer. You know, the first time you drink beer, you puke, and then you think, later, I can't live without it. So the first time you drink coffee you wretch and then after that you tolerate it and then you don't talk to people until you've drank a pot in the morning so well when most americans say i can't start my day without my cup of coffee what they really mean is a tall uh, glass of warm milk with sugar in it um and that's slightly coffee flavored oh i'm a black coffee drinker i'm hardcore (laughs) now i never liked coffee at all uh, which is why i embarked on the the quest to find a coffee i could drink and now i am unquestionably unashamedly addicted to it there is no other way to put it it's the that caffeine punch i mean i I didn't have any today and uh i'm probably going to be fine today but if i don't have any tomorrow the headaches will begin Um, (laughs) anybody who's been addicted to um a vasoconstrictor will know what what that's like that being uh, coffee and nicotine the most common ones hmm Yep, not I. <laughs> um, and I, I, I've really come to enjoy the the earthy flavor of coffee, but I don't like the acid. I don't like the bitter, but I like that that earthiness. It's kind of reminiscent of chocolate, but not really. Anyway, um, so the, as we have already mentioned, we're recording uh, uh, early because Miles had to, you know, have a family. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so. There are fewer people than the usual one or two uh, in the chat room tonight, but that's all right. We'll, we're still going to do our thing. Um, this week, uh, my kids were on spring break, and so I took uh, Thursday and Friday off to, to to be a good dad, right? To spend time with my family, because that's what I do. Uh, that's what dads do. They spend time with their family. Uh, so uh, Thursday, uh, I took my kids to the w- largest mall in Georgia, because I have ch- girls and if you want to spend time with girls you you have to go to a mall so my quality time was sitting on a bench while they were in shoe stores uh most of the day um and of course i paid for everything and then yesterday uh they all did other things and i spent the day by myself so i took time off to spend time with my family and instead i spent a lot of time in my basement working on other projects uh, welcome to family life, the life of, of teenagers. They, they, they want your wallet, but not your presence. If you can get them to look up from their phones, it's usually a, a major yeah. achievement. I literally had to threaten my oldest to not 
to, to get out of bed. I mean, not that she was sleeping. She just spent all day in bed on her phone. And so I made her come to, made her, like under pain of death, made her come out of her room and, and after which time she sat on the couch and stared at her phone. <laughs> you know, you're going to have to like put some rules in your Wi-Fi that just kills that MAC address for, and then that'll get her up. But it doesn't do any good on a phone because they have a whole separate antenna that I can't control. Oh, that's right. But it's a family plan, right? You could go in and program it to like, aren't there family plans where you can like make them not accessible during certain times? Well, actually, I, I have a, a what's the, the the little microcell tower because we live in an area with very poor reception. I could deactivate her Mac from that one. And then uh, it wouldn't completely cut her off, but it'd drop her to like half a bar. So that would almost do the trick. Wow. Cruelty. <laughs> <laughs> but what I found is a better parenting technique is not to take away the phone, but to take away the charger. Because then there's that moment of they have to be responsible for how long do I want to live with this thing? And the battery dies. And you know, it's, it's a more profound effect, uh, I found, is to just take the chargers from them and let them keep their devices. Yeah. Oh. That would work well, I'm sure. Yeah, they'll it's appreciate a, the uh, the high battery life of the newer phones that you'll be buying <laughs> them for this Christmas. <laughs> uh, well, my oldest, uh, excuse me, my middle one is due a uh, a smartphone on her 13th birthday because that's that's sort of the rite of passage in our house. At 13, you get a phone. Uh, but I have laid out certain things that had to be done, namely uh, finding the floor in her room uh, before she can have that, and she's made no effort to do it at all and i mean i'm not kidding if she started now she probably won't make it by mid-july it's that bad um it looks like an episode of orders uh so she's going to come to that crisis moment the weekend before her birthday when she is you know waiting in her own filth realizing this isn't going to happen and this thing i've been waiting for for the last two years uh, hasn't come to pass and uh, that'll be interesting i'll be the most evil parent on the planet that day what you should do is you shouldn't say anything about it, and then you should like you should buy the phone and like unbox it and just put a put a, you're good at sarcasm put a little sarcastic note in there you know re shrink wrap it up and then wrap it up so then she opens it opens it and goes you know you can find this once your room is clean or something so hide it in the room. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> your new phone is somewhere in your room. Yeah. Uh, but then she would just throw everything aside till she found it, and that would be that. Uh, I mean, we've, uh, in coming up in uh, the first uh, end of June, we will have been here a year. So we, we're uh, nine months in or so right now, 10 maybe. Um, and she unpacked her boxes only because I told her she couldn't open Christmas boxes until she had opened boxes in her room. And her unpacking was she opened the box, she dumped the stuff on the floor, and that was that. And that so since Christmas, that's been the state of her room. Um, I take pictures of it every now and then and compare them to like disaster pictures you see after a tur- tornado or a hurricane, indistinguishable. Um, <laughs> and you can't make somebody care about that. That, that's, that, that has to come from them. Uh, so I don't try to make her clean it or anything. At some point, she's going to get so fed up. There's something will happen. Something will trigger in her in her life, and she'll realize I can't live like this. Or she's going to be on an episode of Hoarders, the Teen Edition. I don't know which. Uh, but I I I've realized a, a few years back that every conversation we ever had was about cleaning her room, and that's not a good way to spend your father daughter time. 
when that's all you ever talk about. So I've just decided right. I, I'm not pressing that anymore. I anyway. can understand that. Um, wow, I didn't mean to go there at all. Um, so Seth, you saw a movie that that a lot of people hated before it ever came out. Was it any good? You know, um, it wasn't like, okay, the animated Ghost in the Shell was an awesome movie and the standalone complexes they, they did were awesome. So the... The thing I did not like about this movie is they did an origin story of the major rather than tell a ghost in the shell story, but you can obviously tell they're expecting like this to be like a tentpole franchise type thing. And I'm really looking forward to the next one because I really think, you know, okay. I mean, you just, you can't do live action you know, all of the, the science fiction stuff as well as you can do it in comics. It can look good and it can look awesome. I, it was very visually appealing. Um, like I say, it was kind of an origin story. So, you know, they're telling how it got this way rather than telling a story. So I kind of didn't like that, but I thought it was really good. And, you know, Scarlett Johansson looks a lot like the major. So, you know, people who talk about how it should be, you know, an oriental Asian or Asian person playing that part. Well, Hey, guess what? In the anime and the comics, you know, they look American. So I think they did a good job with it. Uh, I wasn't sad that I saw it and I'm really looking forward to a true ghost in the shell movie. Now that we got the origin out of the way, I hope it does good enough that we get one. Hey Seth, I'm going to plead dumb here because I don't even know the backstory for this movie. But what's the what's the context of it? Okay, well, it's kind of well. I mean, obviously, it's set in the future, and the line between human and machine has become so blurred. There's pretty much next to no non-augmented humans. People get like special eyes, you know, uh, cyborg type limbs. And so they're a government organization that's sort of like the equivalent of a federal level police force. Think something like FBI or maybe FBI slash NSA. And they're dealing with you know, high level nation state type espionage or something that's kind of, but they're at, but it's kind of like a police force version of that. So it's, I thought it, I loved them. Like I say, I love the manga and the original movie. Um, the series were very well done. Some of the best anime storytelling for adults. I think that I've seen. So I, I don't know anything about it either, um, <clears throat> other than, you know, you said it's visually peel, appealing and it has Scarlett Johansson in it, so that's a given. Um, right. But from the, the preview, and, and literally that's all I know, is the like two-minute preview I've seen on right. TV uh, or at the movie theater, it looks like she is like not human at all, like maybe was human and has been transferred to a fully cybernetic thing. Is that a spoiler if you answer that question? She has a human brain inside a fully artificial body. So that's, uh, which I mean, that's pretty much true to the manga and the anime as well. So she has a human brain, kind of the, the ghost, which is kind of like we would say in, in what the Western world, the spirit or the soul inside the machine. So ghost in the machine is like the soul, the brain kind of has survived the process from organic body to synthetic body. And so hence ghost in the shell. Okay. So kind of a RoboCop, but sexy. 
Yeah, but again, RoboCop, the thing about RoboCop is he was he was the first cyborg and in anime every, pretty much most everybody is cyborg. She's the first 100% cyborg. So it, it's less of a juxtaposition of her in that society than RoboCop is in his society. So, you so know, what do you what do you give it out of ten? What's the Seth score? Um, like I say, I I think it was seven because it, they did an origin story, which to me limits how they can kind of do the movie. So you don't get to see a regular movie. Whereas, you know, rather than just throwing you in and kind of piecing stuff together, but at the same time, to me, it clears the way for the second movie to be an all out, you know, visual love fest for, you know, fans of the anime. And that's, that's what I'm hoping that I'm hoping there will be a second one. And I'm hoping that's what it will be. So seven. Okay. Seven's not bad. You know, I've said many times, most things in the world on a scale of 10 or a seven, that's right. You know, there's a reason that's considered passing. Uh, Most movies are a seven. It takes, you know, a really bad one to be worse and a really good one to be better. So yeah, what you're saying is it was fine. That's my, that's the word I use. Fine. Nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Just fine. Okay. Um, I, uh, my kids saw the new, um, Disney, it's not even, I, I don't even, new doesn't even seem to be the right word for it. The remake of the cartoon of the Beauty and the Beast, the shot for shot live action, let's reenact this cartoon movie. I don't know why they're doing this thing. I mean, they did it with Cinderella, now they're doing, they, they wanted to go see it and I very much didn't want to go see it. It's not that I won't ever see it, I'm sure because they loved it so much uh, i will see it at some point after it comes out on dvd but i just didn't want to spend 20 bucks for the privilege so um i said you guys go do that while i'm at work this week and you have fun with it but they told me it was a an amazing thing that they made some uh changes from the original just enough to uh you know make it interesting i guess um but that's i have no media to report from you for movies but i did finish and i think i mentioned it uh, a while back i did finish on netflix uh, the uh, um, O.J. Simpson story. I'm I'm blanking on the actual title of it. Um, the People versus O.J. Simpson, I think, is what it's called. I was um, just about to say making of a murderer, but <laughs> yeah, that's pushing it, isn't it? <laughs> um, having having seen it all the way through, you know, and having lived it, I, I was there, um, <clears throat> not in California, but in around in that age, we all were. I thought they handled it pretty well. Uh, obviously, they had discussions that took place in private that, um, you know, I doubt OJ and Robert Shapiro ever actually told anybody the conversations they had. So they had to make some stuff up. But it was relatively historically accurate. It was also interesting. It painted Johnny Cochran uh, in a very positive light, uh, but it but also exposing all of his flaws. Um, and, you know, and it's it's it takes some real storytelling to do that. Uh, so just finished it today it's a i think a 10 or 12 part uh series um worth 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 checking out just because uh again as a the art of telling a story they did a really good job um don't use it as a history textbook though i was in california or los angeles for that whole time period man that was freaky (laughs) you got sick of it after a while i mean it was like 24 7 news coverage it's like come on is there anything else going on in the world but apparently not yeah, and the the jurors 
took less than three hours to to deliberate uh this which just you know is unheard of um but it was because they they had been living that for what 14 months i think they were sequestered uh it was a it was a big deal for for the whole country but certainly for the city of los angeles yeah we were so worn out from that that was just a crazy time because i mean that came right on the it was i can't remember if it was before or after the riots the rodney king riots right it was after yeah, and then there was an earthquake, and there was like one thing after the other. It was like bam, bam, bam. It was a really crazy time. Uh, another thing I did, I spent some time uh, doing, and I, I'm only mentioning this because I've gotten a, f- a couple of emails from people who are interested in it, but I spent some time playing with my LED light project a little more. Um, <laughs> and wh- what I've, as, as always happens, you you can't understand how big a project is when you start off. Um, you, you find yourself in the weeds. Um, and I'm, I'm not an electrical engineer. I took, you know, a couple of classes in college. That's about as far as I can go, uh, with that. And I've dabbled, but this is turning into more of an engineering feat than I thought. Uh, my original plan was, uh, I'll just have a bank of PC power supplies back in this closet over here. Uh, and I'll have the wires running out to the, the lights and, and that'll go like that. But physics tells me I can't do that. Um, 12 volts, um, um, like you can run 15 amps at 120 volts easily over, you know, standard, like 15 or 18 gauge wire or 16 or 18. It's not a big deal. Uh, but over, um, DC at 12 volts of 15 amps is like, you need an O gauge giant jumper cable type wire to do that. It's, uh, it gets a lot, uh, a lot hotter. Uh, there's a reason we transfer uh, electricity at high voltages and, and not at low voltages. So I've ended up having to engineer a series of, of power distribution stations uh, that will be set up throughout the room so that they can n- reduce the range and the amperage that I have to push uh, to the lights. And then a central control station going back to the closet where I'd hoped everything. And and these all started with small scale bench tests. You know, I was of course running the, the numbers on a calculator and then trying to see what happened. And, um, you know, I was, I was burning up wires of, of small gauges, uh, just because of the, you know, each strip running, uh, two amps or so. Anyway, I, I'm not going to go into it, but it's been a, it's been a much more interesting learning experience than I thought it was. Uh, and I'm still in small scale. I have all the stuff and I'm, I think I'm ready to start experimenting with large scale, but it's been a lot more engineering work. I thought it was just going to be some coding, but it's a lot more than that. Hmm. So anybody thinking you might want to follow in my footsteps, um, maybe don't yet until I uh, can tell you what some of the pitfalls are. Of course, I'm, I'm, I'm really oversaturating it with light. I'm using way more light than it needs, not for brightness, but for coverage. I want a smooth, even coverage uh, you know, I'm in a basement situation with uh, exposed pipes and things like that. So I'm trying to make sure that there are no shadows and I want a nice even lighting. So even though I'm probably going to end up running this at half speed or half power when it's all said and done, I can't um, build it to accept half power because something might happen. Some, some, sometime I, I, I type 250 when I meant to type 25 in the code or somebody uh, punches a button or something and suddenly it unleashes the full power and I best case scenario throw a fuse worst case scenario set a fire so I, I have to engineer it at full capacity even though I'll probably never use it right well we're waiting for uh, the final outcome 
and then we'll either follow in your footsteps or run away in the opposite yeah. direction. <laughs> I did find a good source of LED light strips on uh, from Alibaba AliExpress, actually, uh, and I bought them straight out of China. It took them a month to get here, but I only paid six bucks per string for for a, a five meter string of lights. Which, if you go on Amazon, you're going to get paying eighteen to thirty. So six was great, and they all seem to be pretty good quality. So uh, I, at some point, once I have everything all figured out, I'll lay it all out. Maybe do a show on it. Maybe just uh, do a document dump, a la um, Edward Snowden, uh, and then let you figure it out uh, on your own. But it's been it's been an interesting experience, uh, way more than I thought it was going to be. So just an update there. Very cool. And uh, Miles, you uh, you've gone back to to the south for more dentist work. Yeah, yeah, we. Um you know, I went down there um, a while back. I reported uh, from my findings that going to Mexico to get your teeth done doesn't didn't kill me. I didn't get kidnapped and turned into a coyote or something. I um, anyway. So so as it happens, uh, we sort of have a theme of family here. My uh, my wife needs a lot of dental work and. Um, she works in. Uh, she works at home like I do, and she works as a uh, clothing designer. So her business is very seasonal. So she's coming to the end of the season. So you know, I had sort of said, um, "Well, you know, kind of threatening. Do you want to actually go down to Mexico? You know, I went down there and I kind of broke ground, and it didn't kill me. You know, do you want to go down and have a look?" And she's like, well, I don't really, you know, she's got this thing about dentists. She doesn't want to go and sit in a dentist chair. I don't blame her. I mean, it's not the most enjoyable experience. But anyway, um, we ended up uh, deciding to spend a day down in Los Aldegones, uh, which is just outside of Yuma, Arizona, on the Mexican side of the border. So we went down there, and I took her to the dentist I went to, and she went in, and they did an exam. And, oh, my God. <laughs> We got some serious uh, teeth thing going on here. So in the end, she needed six crowns and a couple of reconstructions and a whole bunch of things. I didn't even understand what they are. And uh, you know, funny story. When she was a kid, she were her parents were uh, teachers. Uh, they worked for a Department of Education in Australia. And Australia had decided to send teachers to build schools to Papua New Guinea, uh, an island to the north of Australia, which is probably well known for its uh, tribes and its, um, yeah, I don't know, they're fairly brutal tribes. <laughs> anyway, uh, she went and spent a lot of her childhood in New Guinea while her parents were building schools there. And as far as dentistry goes, when they have a dentist up in those uh, tribal areas, they come along with a drill that's powered with a foot pedal. Mm. I mean, we were talking like 1870 technology here. And uh, she had some fillings done and they put mercury in there. I guess that's what they did back in those days. And she's been living yep. with the mercury in her teeth for 50 years. So, you know, it's a, it's a poison. You've got to get rid of that stuff. Anyway, long story short, get down there. Somehow she builds up the courage to go into the dentist's office. He does the exam, and she says to me, you you can't come in here. You've got to go and wait in the waiting room. All right. So I'm in there for, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour. Nurse comes out. You better come in. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm thinking, oh, no, what's happened? Anyway, there she is in the chair, She and, and these photographs up on the screen. So they've got really good technology there. They've got all these photos of everything going on. 
And, oh, my God, I see these teeth, and I'm thinking, oh, we, we got to do some work here, huh? And so she looks at me and goes, well, it's going to be 4500 bucks." I'm thinking, oh, man. But then I worked out what it was going to cost if I had it done in the U.S. It was like nearly $20,000. It's crazy. Mm. So we, I said to her, well, do you want to do it? And she goes, yeah, I, I better do it. And I'm thinking, okay, that means we'll come back you know, in a week or so and do it. No, no, I'm doing it right now. <laughs> so, okay, back in the waiting room I go. Six hours later, here she comes, like, you know, sort of struggling with this major jaw pain and the teeth thing, but all the teeth have been removed and she's got, like, temporary caps in there. And she's sort of half awake, and now I've got to drag her somewhere through this foreign town walking to get to the border. And so we can walk about four blocks and then she's you know, getting there gradually. We get to the border and there's this line of people waiting to cross into the US and it must have gone for about 100 yards. So we go all the way to the back and little by little, this line gradually gets through to the US. We get within five or six people of the US borderline and she's sort of, you know, in a lot of pain. She wants to deal with this. And I'm thinking like, what have I done here? You know, I'm putting my wife through. This is crazy. But, you know, she wanted to do it. Fair enough. It has to be done. Anyway, meanwhile, there's two lines. There's our line going in. There's another line on the other side. I literally watched this lady faint and fall on the ground on the other line. I'm thinking, oh, this is great, isn't it? You know? <laughs> Anyway, we get through, immigration guy checks the passports. Yeah, go on, in you go. Got to the car, drove home, and it was so simple. But now I've got to go back next week and do the whole thing all over again because they've made the porcelain teeth now, and now they've got to fit them. So, yeah, anyway, long story short is no one died, no one's, you know, seriously deformed, um, and we saved 15000 bucks. So there you go. It's hard to argue with that. I mean, it, as, as painful as it might have been, it would have been that painful anywhere. Uh, so, you know, the, other than the, the standing in line for a couple hours, you, you know, if somebody said, I'll pay you $15,000 to go stand in this line for a couple of hours, seems like a pretty good deal. Yeah, but, but here's, I mean, okay, I'm curious on your opinion on this, right? Mark, you're married. I put myself down on the line, the front line, to try this out because I'm willing to sacrifice myself, you know, to protect the family. That's kind of what you do, right? But then you, your wife goes in there and decides she's going to do it, and then you realize it's too late once you're in there. If this was a big mistake, mm. you know, and, and you're carrying the whole thing on your shoulders, <laughs> it's not a great, uh, great experience, I must admit. But in the end, it worked out. So what do you do? <laughs> i i would i would do that uh i think if uh if uh, mexico were closer to me i i, I would not hesitate I, for fifteen thousand dollars i mean it's, it'd be worth making the the trip so i i think that's definitely something to uh to keep in mind well the guy who was sitting in the waiting room with uh during some of the time i was there um he flew in from new york city to do it and then there were people uh, all over the place from canada Apparently, Canada doesn't have good dental coverage or something. Mm. Maybe certain plans, at least. Very popular with people coming in from long distances away. So, well, yeah, I mean, you spend five thousand dollars on a flight and a hotel and all of that. You still save ten thousand dollars. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. 
So anyway, I would say at this point, it's an in-progress little project here, and probably by the end of next week we'll have the final outcome, but I would say at this point it looks really like uh, something I could, you know, openly recommend to people. But your mileage may vary, hey. You know, yeah. don't hold me accountable if you Yeah, I, I'd much rather hear that from your, from your <laughs> wife than from you. She yeah, had a yeah, point, you point had point a couple point. of fillings. She had a much more extensive work done. <laughs> right. Yeah. But she's willing to go back, so I guess that means something. Yeah. Yeah, she's a trooper. And then Seth, you uh, I, I saved the the best for last. You're getting to uh exercise your um um speaking skills tomorrow. Um, yeah, our pastor is out this week and I, I told him, Hey, I think I might have a message, you know, if you ever would like a week off. And so he said, Hey, how would you like to preach this week? And I said, okay, so I'm going to preach. Yay me. That's, that's, uh, that's cool stuff. I, I know, um, not everybody who listens shares our, uh, religious beliefs, but, uh, to be given the, uh, responsibility and honor of, of teaching, um, in a Sunday morning environment, that's a, that's no small deal. Uh, that's, that says a lot about you and about what he thinks of you. Yeah. Well, and you know, like the first time I've been going to this church for a long time and, and the first time I ever had, you know, the opportunity to, to share in an organized setting, um, it was a, well, it was on a Wednesday night service and I sat up there and the senior pastor on one side and the associate pastor on the other. And it's like, they were watching me to make sure, you know, I didn't, you know, like send everybody to hell or anything. And so, you know, that's been years ago and I've preached occasionally and do some teaching. So I don't know how good I am, but it's something I enjoy doing. Do you get to call somebody a sinner? You know, it just depends on if that works into the sermon or not. So, <laughs> I know Seth, the person he's most likely to call a sinner is himself. Yeah. All right. Uh, I just have one little bit of listener feedback this week, not because we didn't have a bunch, but because I wanted to keep this relatively short uh, because of the the recording time but rick um long time uh contributor to the show sent me uh, an email actually it was addressed at you seth but unintentionally he has epitomized the the open source uh mindset and i'm going to read his email and then i'll give my comments about it afterwards it says hi guys in a recent episode seth bemoaned the fact that he can't get a quote real view of things on the internet because he uh, cut sites try to tailor their content to his likes by way of cookies. An easy way to get around this is to visit sites in incognito mode on Chrome or private browsing on Fox. I have no idea how to do it on Internet Explorer or Edge because I've never needed incognito mode to download Chrome. Without uh, content affecting cookies, the sites present a vanilla offering, which isn't uh, tailored to a specific Internet user. Uh, For an interesting experiment, go to Google and enter your name. Then go to incognito mood and do the same thing. You'll probably get a very different result, Rick. P.S. You can also count this email in the yes, I'm still listening total. So um, as I mentioned before we started recording, I'm actually using incognito mode right now uh, because uh, Hangouts no longer work in Firefox, so I have to use it in Chrome. But my show notes and everything in Chrome are with a different account. So I had to open a separate ta- uh, tab in an incognito mode and log in with a separate account so that I can do the Hangouts. Uh, so, uh, yes, I, that's a thing. Absolutely. But what I wanted to comment on is, uh, and yes, there are private browsing modes in, in both uh, Explorer and Edge. But what I wanted to comment on is, is you're such an open source guy, Rick. You're such a tinkerer that you don't even consider that um, – uh, a bad thing 
It's it's just a way that you look at doing it. I look at that and immediately think, why should I have to do that? Why should I have to take the extra step and do the extra thing? And I think that's kind of what Seth was bemoaning. But we we tinkerers, we Linux guys, we open source folks uh, are always willing to go to that extra step because we enjoy the extra step process. But it's a it's a it's not a feature; it's a bug that we have to use an incognito mode just to see the world as it really is. I mean, that's exactly, yeah, you know, it's the tyranny of the default. I don't want to have to do that every time. You know, if I have to put that much work into it, you know, why bother? I mean, I just, it's not worth it to me. So I just would rather gripe than take the extra step. And otherwise, I have seriously thought about loading up a bunch of VMs and each one having a, and like, okay, this is my Facebook VM. This is my email VM. This is, and you know, this is one where I'm not going to sign into either one and just, but I'm not going to do that work. It's too much work. And, you know, I don't have the beefy resources to handle all of that on one computer because I have old cheap stuff. Miles, you have any thoughts? Oh, I don't know. It's, um, I really wish we ne- it never came to this. I mean, that we had to do this sort of stuff just to have a, live our lives and not be owned by some company or government or whatever. But I don't know. Maybe I, I don't want to come across depressed by the whole thing, but at some point you just have to pick your battles. And this one, doing what he's doing, I think is a you know courageous task and I'm you know all power to him to do it. But I think I gave up on getting this deep into the – privacy world years ago because it's just too much work i i was reading a, a forum recently uh about how to get a particular piece of hardware to work and one of the posters was well you can go here and download this and then uh compile the source uh, int- uh by uh manually and then it'll work but anytime you need uh, do an update uh, to your system change versions or change the linux headers or any of that you have to recompile but that's no big deal that's a big deal. I mean, even if it is just a couple of commands, make, make, install, it's still a big deal that you have to do that. Uh, and it goes back to that, uh, you know, the, the, the soft, the, the, the open source tax that I've talked about before. But in this case, you know, it's not even the open source. It's just the, the world in which we, if, if you just want to see things as they are and not as they are customized and filtered and handed to you, you have to take extra steps. Um, and it's such a double-edged sword there because I like the fact that things are, are um, customized for me. I like that my Google Now offers up articles that I am interested in. I don't have to go look for them. They're there every day. Uh, and based on my search patterns and, and the feedback I've given it, it serves me stuff I'm interested in. I get that. I like that. But at the same time, once that filter bubble has been erected around you, you have to take extra steps to see the world as it really is. Yeah, what's also difficult with this sort of stuff is that if you're willing to go the route of, you know, installing stuff from and compiling from source and doing all that sort of thing, and you're part of a community project, uh, which, you know, embraces that, um, the one thing which is a, I don't know if it's so much of a downside, it was just an experience that I've found on so many of these sorts of projects these days, is that as time moves forward and versions change, the community wants you to be running the latest, greatest version of something even before it's really been adequately tested. And if you've committed to something maybe a year or two ago and you put, 
you used it in another product or in another thing and that other thing doesn't work with the newer version or whatever and you're kind of stuck in the old days, um, a lot of these open source projects don't have ways of kind of bringing you forward. Uh, that was something that Microsoft to this, well, I don't know if it was to their strength, but it was their reason that they got such high proliferation in the PC market was that their software compatibilities went all the way back, you know, 20 years ago. If you were running something in Windows 3.1, chances are there's probably a version that runs in Windows 10 or it, you could be carried forward to Windows 10. It's not necessarily the case in a lot of open source projects. It's like an abandon and restart each time. And the expectation to put that on people can be just a bit too high. Well, let's not uh, pin that entirely on the open source community. Uh, Apple does that too. They, with abandon, will abandon uh, existing things uh, like, you know, the phone jack, the headphone jack, for example. um, And they have no remorse about it. So, uh, you know, and uh, Microsoft was criticized heavily when they finally abandoned 16-bit support uh, in Windows Vista, or not Vista, but Windows 7. It was like, how could you do this? Well, our entire system is legacy on this. We've been running the same code since 83. Well, maybe because you've been running the same code since 83. Uh, so it's it's good and bad. Uh, but yeah, like, you know, I've, I've mentioned it many times here. I'm stuck um, in my recording studio because the mixer I use, uh, the drivers didn't get carried forward past Windows XP. So I'm running a Windows XP machine here in my in my studio because I can't ever go past it until I change hardware, expensive hardware. You know, and I wonder like, you know, okay, I'm all for companies making money because you know, whoever, you know, people got to eat, but is it that it, the internet costs more than my, you know, upfront charge to the, uh, my ISP pays or, is it them trying to squeeze a turnip dry by cataloging all that information so they can aggregate the data and present it to customers for additional ads and all that kind of crap? If it costs more, then I need to know that, you know, have a different package. You know, hey, I, I paid for the leave me the bleep alone option. That's why my ISP is twice as much as everybody else. Quit you know, quit doing all this stuff. But is it just the fact that, Hey, look, nobody thought about this. We can make an extra 20 cents a day if we, you know, customize the crap out of this. So I, I just wonder, you know, I mean, like I say, I'm not, I'm pro capitalism. And so I want people to make a living, but I am anti, um, excessive profit. So I'm a modified capitalist, I guess, or a a capitalist with a soul. So you're not a human, you're a Mac address. (laughs) Well, well, and you know, we could also throw in there while we're whining about things. Why does uh, a business pay two to three times as much for the exact same service as a home user? Um, You know, ISPs aren't the only people that do that, but they're certainly the ones who are the most blatant about it. Um, Your hundred megabit stream cost a hundred dollars a month, unless you're a business. And then it's a thousand dollars a month for the exact same service. I mean, is is it the exact same service? Usually, you get a lot more. You get more, um, less restrictions on you if you're if you're a business class. Well, yeah, um, maybe maybe you get to run servers or you get more than one IP address, uh, things like that. But in terms of the things that matter, 
the the actual bits flowing in and out um it's the same pipe literally the same piece of copper well yeah it's the same piece of copper but you know they they restrict certain ports for home users um and then there there's other i'm i worked for a cable company for a while and so i you know i kind of talked to some of the like the um back end people and there were some different things they did to the company's stuff that they didn't or they did to the home users whereas the companies were basically said you know you better know how to secure your stuff because we don't do it for you um right but why do i have to why do i have to pay extra money to do more work yeah well you know you're paying extra money because they're not I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I, I just know it, it is different, or at least it used to be different. Just uh, so. I'm. I'm. We're, I'm going to let this die eventually. I promise. But uh, seven, eight, nine years ago, w- way back uh, in the dawn of of the age, uh, my church was associated with a small local ISP in the town, uh, and I was uh, at that church setting up one of their servers, um, and. I don't remember what what made me think to do this, but I did a, a network neighborhood search in Windows and started finding PCs of other people on the the service. So the ISP had connected everybody in such a way that uh, C drives were open to the public, um, to other people connected to their network. I reported that to the the network and said, "Hey, here's a security flaw that I found here." You know, uh, I, you know, I, I'm pretty sure you didn't mean to do this. So their response was to make it so that, um, people on the same ISP couldn't see each other at all. So if you ran a mail server, you couldn't mail to somebody on the same ISP. If you had a website, your website wasn't visible by people on the same ISP. So they went from wide open to completely black, neither of which is the right answer. Um, (laughs) Somebody who didn't know what they were doing. Exactly. And so I ended up having to, um, since we hosted, I hosted the, the church's website on my uh, home server at home on the same ISP. And so I ended up having to set the people up at the church so that they could edit their own uh, web page. They had to use a proxy service that routed their traffic through California and back just so they could edit the web page for their own church. Because the ISP had gone from all to nothing. Wow. So if you think your ISP is on top of it, you're probably wrong. Uh, now, moving on to the discussion uh, at hand. I've called this, t- uh, this show the Turing Test. This came up as a discussion uh, that we were having uh, after we stopped recording last week about um, the, the concept of replicating things. So let's go with Ghost in the Shell. That was a good lead in. Um, if, uh, the major had a body that was exactly like her old body, would it matter if it was a reproduction? Um, you know, Alan Turing posed the, the, the test of is a computer alive? If you can have a conversation through some terms, either voice or text or, or some way, if you could some way communicate with a computer and not tell that that computer wasn't a person, then it could be said that that computer is alive. And we have... Uh, uh, software engineers have been trying to pass the Turing test, the Alice project, for example, for years, and nobody's even come close yet. Uh, you can fool them for a few sentences, but eventually uh, it just doesn't work anymore. Um, so we just had this thing. Uh, we, we thought we'd talk about what does it mean 
to reproduce something and and does it matter at what point does it not matter anymore at what point do we we all we're in the matrix and the reality is so good and in many cases better than the real reality will it matter i mean uh, the the sci-fi writers have had a, had fun with this over the years eventually virtual reality becomes better than reality and then people live their lives entirely in virtual reality um that's a plausible way to think right humans act like that seth could you see that becoming a real thing i mean i hope it isn't a real thing but i look at people who you know you go out to eat with people and you don't know why you're eating with them because everybody is looking down on their phone you know and it's easier to text someone rather than talk to them and so, yes, people could definitely live virtually and go their entire life without really connecting with people because there's just something wrong when there's a when you force a layer between you and someone else. Well, just, just take Facebook, for example. Facebook is a highlight reel. Nobody posts on Facebook, you know, that they clipped their toenails last night. Um, Facebook is a highlight reel. And for some people, it's a low light reel for people who, who want attention from others. You know, we all know that that person on Facebook who will post a status like, I can't believe what just happened. And then, you know, basically validate me, validate me, tell me I matter. Um, but that's an example of the, the fact that, that we are interested in not only, uh, uh, putting the best face of ourselves forward but also we're interested in seeing the best of 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 everybody facebook is a small microcosmic example of that virtual world where we it's better than the real world and so we spend time there i think that you know i mean this is probably not the direction you saw this going but i think that what things like facebook do is they allow you to play to your insufficiencies rather than forcing you to develop your socialization skills of going out, talking with someone in real time, you're able to hide your discomfort and put this barrier between you and others. So you can take your time to respond back. You can craft. Oh, I'm going to say this. Oh, wait, no, I'm going to say that. Oh, wait, no, rather than, Hey, guess what? Sometimes I just say the wrong thing because I just don't care. Or, you know, I, I, I don't think fast on my feet or whatever, but instead we're insulating ourselves from anything that makes us appear less than perfect because we don't take the time to develop character anymore we take the time to develop people's perception of ourself and facebook and other virtual things play into that in spades and so you take a shortcoming and you build it into a problem because you keep um, propping up the shortcoming rather than dealing with it but, but My- isn't that isn't that like a to go to your original point about is the reproduction as good as the original? Isn't that just a character trace of humans, regardless of how you manifest it, whether it's it happens face-to-face when you're looking in the eye of somebody and that problem occurs versus online? Is it not the same thing? I, I think it is human nature to um, seek the best experience. And I think that it's only a matter of time till the best experience is not the real one. 
But what what's your definition of best then? Well, that's you know, that, Gideon, that's different uh, between uh, you know the within the hu- individual human at the individual moment. I one of my you know core beliefs is that people always do what they think was the best thing to do at the time, um, and people have rationalized all sorts of amazing things, but every, no nobody has ever done a thing where they said, "I know this is entirely wrong. This is the worst thing I could possibly do. I'm going to do it." Now, they may do something that they know isn't right. They'll eat that fourth helping of lasagna knowing that it's going to make them miserable later. But in that moment, the the desire to consume outweighed. In that moment, they thought that the best thing for them at that moment was to eat rather than to not eat. Um, and, you know, there are people who at the moment believed that it was the best thing to do to gas Jews in a gas chamber because that was the right and righteous and best thing for them to do. Um, and people will always do the thing that they think is right at the time. So what, to answer your question, I, I can't answer your question, but there, there will come a time when the, the artificial becomes the best more often than it isn't. That's my prediction for the future. Yeah, so I, I think that I don't, I don't use Facebook, but I don't have necessarily a problem with people using Facebook. What I have a problem with is when people believe that their life in Facebook is more important and more valued than their physical life with people. In other words, they will not go out and meet somebody for dinner, but they'd prefer to sit on chat with them online all night. That to me is, it, it, it's almost a, a crying shame in the face of humanity that you don't interact with humans. We are social animals. That's part of our biology. But if you deal with crippling anxiety over saying just the wrong thing, that dinner out is torture. Um, and being able to interact and, uh, like Seth said, to put, present your best play, face forward, to spend an hour crafting those 140 characters, um, that is better to that person. Yeah, I just I don't want people to be lonely either, though. I mean, I'm an all-inclusive kind of guy. I like to bring those people along and create a comfortable, safe place for them to have a good time and socialize and exercise their human need. But, yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. And see, I'm going to disagree with you. You said that is better. That is easier. Easier doesn't always equal better. And people don't always do the best thing. People almost always do the easiest thing instead of the best thing. And then the problem is, it's just like, okay, when you're working out and training, whether you're training your body or you're training your mind to learn a trade, I can't do that, but I can get a little closer because and I keep trying to get closer and I keep trying to get closer. And the next thing you know, you can do that, but not only something else, rather than that's too hard. I'm not going to do it. Well, the next time I don't even want to get that close. Then I, And then the next thing you know, you spent all day in the bed on your phone because that's more it's easier than having a real life and engaging with people and fixing yourself up and opening yourself up to criticism i mean hey there are some times where a virtual thing i mean if the option is you can do it virtually or never get to do it at all then i'm all for the virtual you know um but if the option is you know risk a little and go do the real thing or risk nothing and do the virtual thing and make it easier to risk nothing in the future, then the, that's easier. It's so much easier. And this, I fight with myself all the time because I, I could literally spend 
all I need is like a big enough water bottle and some, uh, you know, some snacks. And I could spend days upstairs and never talk to anyone. And I could be okay with that, but that's not what is best for me. That is what is easiest for me. And having the virtual makes what is easiest, even easier and makes what is really necessary harder to do in the future. You're right. This is not at all the direction I saw this going, but I'll run with you on that. Um, you, you you said that people uh, don't do the best; they do the easiest. Well, in that moment, they believe that's the best. If if we were if humanity were good at doing the right thing over the easy thing, um, we wouldn't need police. We wouldn't need churches. We wouldn't need um, uh, all sorts of things that we need. Uh, the fact is, humans are fundamentally broken in their ability to do the right thing. And so somebody has to teach them to to do the right thing first, what the right thing is, and then how to deny their instinctual urges to do the wrong thing. Um, you know, uh, I'm bringing in my own personal religious beliefs there, but I think history backs me up in saying that that humanity is bad at doing the right thing for the sake of the right thing. So, is it you, if if I'm hearing the gist of this, the the concept of reproduction versus original. We're looking at this in the context of what's easiest, right? And if the reproduction, which might be a virtualization of an original thing, in other words, virtual social communication on Facebook, it's being adopted and its success is because, not necessarily because it's better than a real social interaction, but because it's easier. Is that correct well that's the branch we've kind of out on at this particular no, moment no, but, yeah. no i think that's an important thing because it's part of, you you can't it's not a boolean argument where you can say original or reproduction what is better you have to look at all the things that are properties of each and one of the properties is convenience well you and, have to, to to get there first you have to get to the good enough principle um you know uh uh myspace wasn't good enough it what didn't have the addictive property that Facebook has. Um, you know, uh, the, there's the, the people were not addicted to. Uh, I'm I'm, I'm going to stop that entire line of thought. Um, never mind. Uh, the there there is there has to come a point where the the artificial, the virtual, the reproduction is good enough, but good enough is way short of of a full replication. In most cases, it is definitely short of a full replication. And that is the problem. Okay. I mean, you know, here's an example where virtual reality is really good. You know, the, um, ISIS extremists destroyed this ancient temple in Syria. Well, before they destroyed it, um, people sent in drones and mapped it. And so now you can go virtually look at that temple and see what it was like before it was destroyed. Uh, you know, and so in this case, hey, that is awesome because I'll never get to have that experience because that temple was blown up unless people think, oh, you're picking on the Muslims. Hey, the iconoclasts um, of the Protestant Reformation, they did the exact same thing to Catholic churches. So that's not, you know, that's people doing stupid stuff in the name of their religion. You know, all religions have people, therefore all religions have people who do stupid stuff. But anyway, that was just a little free bit right there, courtesy of Seth the Gooey Kid Anderson. But so in a situation like that, 
virtual is good because the option is virtual or nothing. And if you're training, hey, it would be cool to have a doctor train on a heart transplant virtually so that way his first time isn't my heart. He's at least gone through the, you know, so virtual is can be awesome when people put it in its proper place. The problem is people surrender to the easy and then they stop there. And so, you know, yeah, if you have, if your anxiety is so bad that even seeing a picture of somebody drives you crazy, then, you know, Hey, you know, something like Facebook, uh, you know, blogs, chat rooms, they can be a good thing to work you up to where you can get to go outside. But if your goal in life is to, you know, be able to charge a pizza on a credit card and spend all day in your PJs, you know, and open up the window in your bedroom. So you don't have to open the door for them to slide the pizza through. Then we've got a problem. So, you know, virtual reality, good or bad, it's two degrees. Well, let's, okay. Let, let's go ahead. Uh, first off, triple word score for iconoclast. Um, but also, uh, I, I want to focus on that, that subset that you brought up there that, that we were talking about the, the good enough principle. Um, the, because, uh, I, I forget who said it. Uh, it might've been Linus Torvald said that, uh, perfection is the enemy of good enough. If you're always striving for perfection, you never move on. Right. Uh, but also good enough can be, uh, the enemy of, of the real of, of perfection, you know, uh, and, uh, let's go down the road that miles is wanting to talk about here because it's, uh, it's important to me too. Um, digital reproduction of audio, the MP3. Um, the, the old heads look at MP3s and say, these kids don't know what real music is. Um, they think an MP3 is good music, uh, because the, it's good. It got good enough. And there's an entire generation of people now, my kids among them, um, who have never heard anything other than MP3 music. I, I, I let me rephrase that, uh, restate that, uh, other than a live concert, at you know like high school band right or uh or um a piano recital or something like that my kids have never heard anything other than mp3 music i have a cd collection but the cds have been wrapped up uh and packed away since my move from texas five years ago uh because i digit i ripped them uh to mp3s and that's the music collection that i listen to we listen to pandora we listen to uh spotify my 14-year-old, other than her middle school band concert, has never heard music that wasn't an MP3. Think about that for just a second. We reached a point there where it was good enough, and we stopped. Sure, you can go, you know, flack. You, there's lossless audio. There's all sorts of uh, high-res stuff. And even MP3s, if you're high-res enough, uh, can um, be, I, I believe, they can be a perfect recreation. There are people who disagree with me on that. Uh, but we reached the point of good enough and we stopped there. And so what happens now, um, to the, the next generation and the next generation, maybe that high school band concert, they're not playing trumpets anymore. They're playing electric trumpets because they're cheaper and they're more durable and the kids don't uh, trash them. And so now, you know, a couple of generations out, you have an entire planet of people who've never heard the real thing. They've only heard an, uh, a, a representation of it. My question that I wanted to pose to you is, is that a loss? I, I'm not sure it is, but I want to see what you think. 
is that a loss when you have a generation of people who've never heard a real trumpet, but have only heard a digital reproduction of a trumpet? Miles, go. Okay, it's a big loss. It's a big loss because it's not about the recording of the the fidelity or the technology or the format. It's about what went in to make it because we don't listen to music to hear high-quality audio. If we wanted to do that, we could hear spoken word, we could hear industrial noise it wouldn't matter we listen to music because it touches us it's our it, it it's something that that hits us as a gut level hit and it doesn't matter whether it was recorded on a crappy old cassette tape in 1964 or whether it's you know high fidelity digital audio it's what it is that is the most important thing um I'm, i've been lucky enough to have a, a many, spent many many years inside the music industry in, in Los Angeles working. And I think that I always felt uh, that while I was there, I was, I was working through the 90s. I guess it was probably in about 1989 and through to about 1995. And that was a very important period for the, the whole Hollywood sound thing because this was when compact discs became of age and it's also when digital recorders became of age. And I always was struggling trying to find out why it, you know, I worked in recording studios that were old, you know, consoles that were from 10, 20 years ago and two-inch tape and compressors and, you know, old school stuff, the hard stuff. A microphone's quality was more important than the tape you put it on. It was stuff like that. And, and that's how I was trained and, and raised up to do that sort of work. And I was always struggling to try and find out why some of the greatest recordings that I was lucky enough to have witnessed or was in the room at the time or whatever, why they were so good. And it's because the artists are human and, the, you know, they've got this ability to project their own humanity forward in a way that gets you, that, that is contagious, that you feel, that you sense their anger or their love or their sorrow or whatever they're progressing, you know, whatever they're expressing, it gets to you. And the way it gets to you, whether it's digital or analog, is irrelevant. It's that it exists and that it can transfer. Um, what I found was in, in about 2013, there was a, a documentary film made, and I, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but if you haven't, I would highly recommend it. Even if you're not a, a musician or into recording, but you just like music, particularly old music from maybe the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, and you want to see how this all progressed, it was done by uh, Dave Grohl, who's the uh, front guy for the Foo Fighters, used to be the drummer, drummer in Nirvana. Um, it's called Sound City. And you can find it on, you can probably find it on YouTube, you can get it on Amazon. This, it's available all over the place. It's a full feature length film. It's really, really well done. And what it does is it tracks the history of this one recording studio in Los Angeles. It happens to be the recording studio where Nirvana recorded the Nevermind album that took them into stardom in the 90s. But it, it has much more history than that. It's where all of the members of Fleetwood Mac met. It's where uh, Tom Petty recorded most of his most successful albums. Um, it's, it, it, it's, it's where Rick Springfield recorded Jesse's Girl. It's this stuff that goes back in time to the late 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, and it went out of business. And it went out of business because digital 
completely destroyed its profitability. And it's kind of a sad story, and yet it's a rebirth story. But I think what it tells me when I look at that is that the world of reproduction, the world of digital, can never capture the human emotion of what it's trying to record in such a way that you, you can't dismiss the musician because of the quality of the recording. That's just wrong. And we wouldn't be listening to the music if it didn't have a good musician. I don't care how good a quality the recording is. I mean, the old U2 albums were recorded on, you know, probably 16-track half-inch tape, and they were mastered in a sort of an iffy way, and we're all going back trying to remaster them years later. But they were great albums. And that's the important thing. It's how do you replace that? How do you synthesize that? That's my question. So can I uh, read back everything you just said in a couple of sentences and say that you feel that the instrument is less is is unimportant as long as the musician is high quality. Is that a s- distilling of what you just said? Uh, yeah, I would say yes. And and what I'm um, okay, the, yes, in two parts. I'm always somebody who would say that the song is more important than the singer. And that's just me. That's how I look at it. All right. I so like right. if I'm if I'm using um, a keyboard to synthesize an orchestra, and I produce an opus that is genius uh, to the level of 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 Chopin, using entirely fake synthesized digital artificial instruments, is that to to go back to my previous question? Is that a loss in any way? Um, it's not a loss for the purpose of writing the music. But if you were to put it, for example, if you, let's say it became a film soundtrack, you know they're going to bring a hundred you know, humans into a room and record it with humans. Because if it's that important, it's got to be done by humans. Machines won't work. The one exception. Yet. Yeah, well, there's one exception. And that is that you use the synthesizer as an instrument intentionally, that you want the characteristics of the synthesizer to be the instrument. It's not, it's not taking a role of trying to reproduce something and establish like an initial version of it so that the original can then be done when you're actually really serious about the end result. But it is itself, in its own thing, it is the instrument. And there are, there are many, many artists out there who have done extremely well and created entire new genres of music based around that principle. So Yeah, it, it, was, it wasn't until, I guess, really the 60s, right, where the psychedelic music movement came about, happened because for the first time we could create sounds that didn't exist in nature. Um, and so that became a new instrument, and it was all over the place. You know, uh, funky keyboards was sort of the, the, the touchstone of that decade. We... we uh, recognize the 60s by the the artificiality of it because they were playing with this new medium of of sounds that didn't exist in nature the the moog synthesizer you know changed everything um but i, I want to go to something that i know you were going to talk about and and i know you know what it is and i know what it is but seth doesn't so uh seth will be the uh the uh, uh stand in for our listener here as i explained to him the concept of amp modeling um so there are a series of of pieces of hardware produced uh, over the years 
that had a signature sound, a guitar amp, for example, uh, produced uh, by a particular company for a particular period of years, um, just had this ineffable quality to it that everybody who, who you could listen to somebody and you could know that that's a Les Paul guitar played on a Marshall half stack. You just know it uh, because the, the qualities are, are there. Well, but because digital technology has gotten to that point, people have now turned that ineffability into math and they've made it effable. Uh, <laughs> so you can now model all of those great amps of the 60s and 70s and 80s and all that great combination. Um, and with the push of a button, not even the fuck of a string, you can reproduce the sound of that particular guitar plugged in to that particular amp running to that particular set of speakers with a fidelity that is able to fool even the most discerning ear. So I go back to my initial question um, that in that case, the, the artificial has, has reached good enough. Maybe it's not perfect. Maybe it is. And we, maybe there's, there's just no way to know, but we now have this good enough quality where for a couple of hundred, literally a couple of hundred dollars, I can have dozens of the world's best amp, millions of dollars worth of equipment um, digitally recreated at the touch of a button. I see that as, you know, the world moving forward. There are other people who see that as, um, uh, you know, the the Armageddon for the arts. Um, so, Miles, I'm going to let you have your say. But, Seth, based entirely on what I just said, the the facts, what are your thoughts on that? think the whole conversation is spurious mark because you already had an artificial sound and so you're changing one artificial sound for another artificial sound and so well, well hold on I, let me i don't understand that so if i pluck the string on a guitar that's not an artificial sound that's a real sound um, that is a real sound that you have modulated mechanically through vacuum tubes or later through you know electrodes or whatever you're not hearing that sound you're hearing it distorted amplified remodulated because i mean that's the whole reason that um the guitar became big in rock bands was with the advent of the electric guitar where you could amp and mic the sound and it's you know you have a, an acoustic guitar with a microphone running pure who wants that you want to plug it into this amp and run it through this effect and you want to hit these four pedals in this sequence to get a quote unquote natural sound that is not natural so I mean, you know, the musician, because a lot of people at church here, you know, they're they're serious about their um, their guitars and their amps. And, you know, this vacuum tube doesn't sound good. I've got to spend fifty dollars to get these vacuum tubes because they're the only ones that work with this amp. And they would they would tell you that it is a big deal, but I'm not that musician. And so for me, it's not a big deal. So I posit that within 50 years, eh, make it 100 Within a hundred years, people will not be plucking strings attached to wood anymore. Um, we're you know finding a good source of wood, for example, is getting harder. Uh, really high quality uh, guitars um, are getting harder to find. Ebony, for example, is is sort of the 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 fretboard of choice choice for a lot of people, and that's getting harder to find uh, because we're you know trees only grow so fast and we can cut them down a whole lot faster than they can grow. So I think you're looking at like maybe three generations out that it'll all be 
synthesized. It'll be an, an entirely artificial instrument mimicking the real instrument. You know, to me, they're like, okay, I, I don't remember where, but I was listening to this famous guitar player and I, I can't remember his name because I'm not, I'm not a big musician, um, musician follower, but he was, this is back when guitar hero was the thing. And we're talking about the guy who played guitar on this track in guitar hero, but his kid was like, I don't care that you can play that on a real guitar. Can you do it on guitar hero? And to me, <laughs> guitar hero is the bleeping version of a guitar and so if you're doing that to make music then you're not about making music you're about technically hitting these things right but if you're having an instrument that's a replica of something you can't make anymore you know or something that because they're so rare they're out of the um, affordability of the average person then in that point giving them access to something that and again, you know, people argue it's never 100%, but that effectively mimics the original. I don't see a problem with that. But when you take it and you do something else where you're substituting technical ability for the soul of the musician, it still takes talent. But to me, it's a different analytical talent versus a creative talent. So, I think, so I, I think what I hear you saying is that if a human and miles i think you're, you're kind of saying the same thing if a human plays a synthesized instrument with a virtuosity um that is okay but if google writes an algorithm that can write a song that that the average person can't uh distinguish between the virtuoso and the algorithm that's a bad thing i, I don't know if it's say bad i think it's it's unrelatable in other words a human being creates an expression of their humanity in music. And, uh, you know, okay, they can also paint and be poets and all the other parts of the art forms that are out there. But in this case, we're talking music. So they put forward themselves, they expose their own emotions and fears and, and, and thoughts and everything in song. And that is what conveys to you, the listener, in the most epic sense if a machine tries and does that and you have no relatability to what the machine is doing, then I don't think it works. And if the machine has some really sophisticated, incredible artificial intelligence level program that can put it all together and make it feel like a human did it, it's still not going to make sense because the, the machine didn't just break up with its girlfriend of 10 years. The machine didn't lose its buddy in war. The machine didn't protest against the, 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 you know, at Berkeley in the 60s. The machine doesn't, it never had those experiences, so it can never express them in a way that we'll pick up on them. Well, so what, until it does. So, well, yeah. <laughs> don't, do you accept the, the, I consider it a given of inevitability that we will develop artificial intelligence indistinguishable from human intelligence do, do you b agree with that statement both of yeah, you yes or yes no? yes i do hmm indistinguishable i think is the key word there so it while it probably wouldn't be the same as but indistinguishable from 
I can give that because you can already, wow, how did Google know I wanted to eat there? Well, it did that, you know, what is our intelligence, but our reaction to all the data we've been exposed to, um, you know, so what's Google's reaction, but all the data it's been exposed to, you know, you throw in a random, a little random spin the wheel of randomness. So indistinguishable. Yes, I can, I can believe that. Okay. Um, so once we have that, does anything that you're saying hold water miles when the artificial entity is an artificial artist? Is that a, is that a problem? Uh, it, it's not a complete picture. You see, we're talking about our, uh, our sense of intelligence, our left brain. And for our left brain, that's a good enough experience that will work. If it simulates something and it achieves mathematically what we need it to do, it's a very left brain sort of thing. Yeah, I get that. And yes, they will be better than we are and so on. But I don't know if a computer can feel. And the one thing that will always separate us from the synthetic is feeling. And that is the essence of art. And it's the essence of music. And it's the things that, it, it, as much as we, we never give it the right attention in school, it never gets budget and all that sort of stuff, all that sort of left brain stuff. When you're on your deathbed and you're looking at the most, the prolific experiences, the, if you're putting your bucket list together, I guarantee that it probably doesn't have solving mathematical problems on it. It's going to be climbing the Kilimanjaro or it's going to be seeing this musician live or it's going to be, I don't know what it's going to be, but it's not, it's going to be, they're the important things to us as humans. All right. And, so I, I Seth, I, I know oh, you were, oh, you had a cat bird canary thing. Go. <laughs> oh, I, I just going to say, I mean, I find this, I find that people would think I would be arguing Miles's point and he would be arguing mine, you know. What makes harmony so good intrinsically is the mathematical relationship to the pitches. So I think there will come a time where you won't, you could hear this piece of music and not know if that piece was either created or preformed by a computer or by, you know, a machine versus a human. I think, you know, now, now granted, I don't want to go see Watson recite poetry, you know, even I, I would rather go see a human recite poetry that Watson wrote. So I understand what Miles is saying. You know, I, I don't really care. There's no, there's no difference between, you know, going to see Watson in person versus, you know, um, when he does a Facebook live session, but going to see people, but because the computer was programmed and, it, you know, it, it comes back to somehow he, they can, you have you react to what you react to um and so you can get an emotional reaction from something created by a non-person and maybe you can't today but i think they will be more honed in on you and they'll they'll, they'll have because everywhere you go is tracked they'll know what kind of data to throw in you know um the turk thing or whatever so that you will to get something that you react to. So I see that day coming. I, I don't think it's here um, categorically, but I, you know, it's just like, 
you know, why do they teach computers chess? Because chess is such a good strategy game that predicts intelligence. You know, Go, same thing. So when they turn computers on, making music, making, you know, creating poetry, you know, they've already had computers do limericks and things like that, short, little, simple stuff. And it's kind of hard to tell. Was that randomly created by a computer or was it by a poet? Um, so it's it's coming, but again, there you you will be missing the interaction i i think while you might could argue that there will come a point when machines can do it better i would still want to go see some person live do something rather than uh, who would care if i watched a machine you know perform all parts of you know shakespeare's hamlet well and i think what you've both said uh there uh in different ways is you've referred to the the scarcity of the thing Right, Miles. When you're when you're on your deathbed, nobody is going to say, "I wish I had done that uh, virtual reality simulation of climbing uh, Mount Everest." Um, it's the, the part the part of what makes something real is that it's rare, um, and we certainly value things that are rare: uh, diamonds, gold. Um, the reason gold has value is because there's not a lot of it. The re- reason platinum has value is there's even less of it. Yes, it has some. Uh, real uh, mechanical properties. It 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 conducts electricity well. It's malleable. It's shiny. But the real value of gold is that there's not much of it. Um, and the real value of diamonds is that most of them are in Africa, owned by a, sing- a single company. Um, and once you once you reproduce a thing perfectly, uh, the the value immediately goes away. For example, there are cultured diamonds in the world today. You you can go buy a cultured diamond. It is chemically, uh, physically identical to a diamond it is a diamond it is just a design created a diamond created in a lab instead of underground and they while they are still expensive because it's a difficult process to make they are uh less expensive by like an order of magnitude of real diamonds why chemically they're identical physically their physical properties are identical they are diamonds why are they less valuable because one is real and one is fake why it's an exact reproduction so you go to now the close enough principle a cubic zirconia is chemically very similar to a diamond physically very similar to a diamond it's close enough for a lot of people and it it's another order of magnitude cheaper you can get you know a one carat cubic zirconia for you know a couple hundred bucks um whereas a one carat diamond of of high quality will be tens of thousands of dollars um why is it less valuable? Because it's less rare. Not because it's less pretty. It's not less pretty. In fact, it's, you know, uh, a a cheap cubic zirconia is prettier than a cheap diamond, a diamond with occlusions, a diamond with with uh, um, uh, impurities. Even that, even the impure, the, the, the poor diamond costs way more than the perfect CZ. So at some point, it's not about how good it is. It's about how rare it is. And, and I think you've both touched on that as you've been talking about the experience, the experience of a, uh, of a, a high-quality musician, uh, the experience of listening to Muddy Waters play the guitar, right? The only recordings we have of him are on ancient records, and the quality is terrible. But the experience is amazing because he was such an amazing player. You know? um, and, and so the, the rarity of that experience, I think, is what really makes it valuable. And once you start mass producing something, suddenly the concept of value goes away. If we ever get to the point where we can do the Star Trek 
matter transferred, you know, the, the replicator that can make anything. What, what's, what is, how do we define value then when you can have everything all the time at the touch of a button, how do you keep score? How do you know what's valuable? Well, I, I would say, you know, okay, I'll get really philosophical here. <laughs> Life is a collection of 80, 90, 100 years of experiences, right? It's the human experience that we have, we have been born into and that we will exit from. It's not the human accumulation of things. It's the experiences that, ca- that those things represent. Um, people who collect things often collect things because they had that thing as a kid or that, you know, that was my first car. I want to find one when I'm 50 and fix it up because they're reliving an experience. Other people want to have new experiences. When it comes to music, your, your recognition of the bands you used to listen to way back when or the music that you grew up with or whatever was based on your experience with that music. It's how it made you feel. It's how you experienced the moment. And the fidelity and the collecting of the physical thing is only just a a recognition of the experience. And what I'm trying to say is that synthetically reproducing something, a diamond or a cubic zirconian, to me, and look, I'm not a jewelry guy, right? But to me, that's irrelevant. What's more irrelevant was who gave it to you, under what circumstances, you know, was it your first love? Was it the person you're married to? Was it the, you know, maybe it was your late husband, maybe whatever, whoever it is, it's the experience, the thing it represents that is the reason why it's on your ring or it's around your neck. And if it's on, if it's there for some other reason, then it's a, to me, it's a shallow waste of human life. But that's, you know, maybe I'm a little bit too grandiose with that. Okay, I think I'm going to take away a word from what you said, Miles. It's not it's not the machine's reproduction. It's also people reproducing the thing that makes it less valuable. Take a guitarist like Chuck Berry. Freaking genius guitar guitar player. He invented things that were spectacularly awesome because nobody had ever done it before. And he was the best. And you might could say there was a couple of people that were at the same level, but everybody acknowledged that was the best level. Now there's mediocre guitar players that can do everything he could do. And so what made him great was the fact that there was, it was so much better than what had came before. But if you play Chuck Berry in his prime versus no name guitar players today, who just did something on YouTube, which one was quote unquote better, probably the no name person because he's refined something the genius did. And so the genius of Chuck Berry has been eclipsed by the average person today but yeah and so when you look at chuck berry you can go wow you can nail the only marvel is wow nobody did that before him you know it's not that that some spectacular thing i've never heard before so a teenager today listen to that goes that's nothing you know so and so does better than that in his garage next door and so reproduction lessens everything over time so I, I don't know that that really made anything or had any point. Well, you had a I just, you you touched on a point there that the the refinement is a key ingredient in reproduction. Um, 
and that's always true. Somebody, somebody, the first thing is never the best thing, but we give it credit for being better than it is because it was the first. I'm going to make a lot of people mad right now. The Beatles music isn't that great. It's good music. It's not earth shattering music. There are a lot of musicians today that are better, but we give them credit because they were the first. A lot of the stuff that everybody's doing today, they were the first to do. So, yes, it, it became mass-produced, but it also became better. It became a, m- a more refined process. But we still idolize the first, even though it's not the best. And so when we look back at these things that have been reproduced, whatever they are, is that not the, the human element of nostalgia there, saying, well, the first is always the best, even if it really isn't? Or, or respect. That's the other thing, too. It's a respect for the person who was willing to paved the way first that opened the door so that the rest of us could go through. Um, I, I think that's an important factor, and we, we humans respect that because it's, it helps us evolve. Um, but you're right. You know, Chuck Berry was a great musician in his time. I can watch Joe Bonamassa today, and he'd blow him away. He's a way better guitarist, but he wasn't the first. And he himself will admit to that. He will say, I'm no Chuck Berry. You know, but he really wants to buy Chuck Berry's guitar and he wants to play it. And why? Because he's respectful. And, and there's some sort of warmth that goes along with that. It's our human emotion playing it out again. Until you can, I don't believe personally you can ever recreate human emotion in a way that doesn't dilute the, the human experience. And I'm very grateful to live at a time in evolution where we're still using technology as a tool because that's what makes us different than the rest of the animals on the planet. We're tool makers. And because we can use technology as a tool that supports a better life experience for us, I'm really proud of that. But the second that the the tool becomes the dominating factor and we're no longer relevant will be a very, very sad day. Yeah, there will come a time when the tool is using us. Yeah, that we will become the tools of the computers instead of the computers being our tools. Um, I I, expe- I accept that as a as an inevitable reality. Um, and then computers will be sitting around having this discussion in the year twenty seven ninety five about you know how code just isn't written like it used to. <laughs> so I, I hadn't thought about that the that respect element you know uh, a lot of nostalgia is uh, you know remembering the good and forgetting the bad um, and we do that there there is a reverence there uh, we reverence the first we reverence uh, and we consider the first the best even though as, as Seth pointed out it almost never is um, I, I think we've reached that point where we're talking around in circles uh, but it's an it's an interesting discussion of you know, the to reproduce something is to lessen its value, or is it? Seth, you were going to say? Yeah, I mean, it does. It lessens. It lessens one value, but it creates a different value because you know sincerity or imitation is a sincerest form of flattery. You know, the problem is with the kids today, Dad <laughs> Gummit. They don't. They have yet to learn that they're standing on the shoulders of giants in whatever field they're doing. You know, um, you know, you talk about how MySpace didn't have the, um, 
addictability of Facebook. Well, Facebook took the things of MySpace that were good, dropped the bad stuff, and then they didn't develop something new. They refined something that was there the same way MySpace had done to Friendster. Um, you know, Google did that to Yahoo. You know, Yahoo, you know, poor Alta Vista got left out in the cold. They did it first, dadgummit, but Google did it more popular. Um, so in that's the problem that's missing with this generation is there's not the respect of the people who've gone before. And of course, you know, I'm sure my parents said that about me when I was their age and their parents said I'm about them. You know, we've said that here many times, but it's, we stand on the shoulders of giants and, and then talk about how short they are. Well, it's something I was talking about uh, just recently is the, the, the value of having done rather than having, um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be a woodworker. Uh, and, Everything I make is not as good as anything I could buy. That that has been a truism of everything I've made. Everything I've made is not as good as the sa- having the ability to buy the same thing. Sometimes it's cheaper. Sometimes it's more expensive. Counting the the versions that I had to throw away. Uh, but that drives it doesn't drive me any less to make it. I still want to make it. I still want to have made, um, even though um, I know it's not going to be as good as the the professional thing so maybe that's what we're talking uh, that miles is trying to tap back into there is is the experience of having been one who did it um is is a is a tangible thing that can't be reproduced um and and i don't know that that's necessarily good or bad you know if you if you plot it on a graph is that is that a plus or a minus it doesn't really belong in the, the 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 discussion of is it a good reproduction. That's the human element. The human element is, uh, you know, I used to to pluck a piece of steel attached to a piece of wood uh, called a guitar. Uh, I have that experience. I have felt that thing. I have felt it vibrate in my hands. I have I have felt the the speakers, uh, um, you know, shake the room that I'm in as I play my bass guitar, and that's an experience that makes it more powerful to me because I was there and I actually experienced it. What'll be interesting is when we, um, when we can simulate that experience to a good enough point so that you can have the experience without actually doing the thing, the, the, the total recall thing, right? We can go to Mars without actually going to Mars. Um, and if you have a clear memory of it, does it matter if you ever actually did it? Hmm. Wow. Well, I mean, uh, I hope we never try to simulate what we feel and, you know, what makes us human, uh, because that would just be really sad. But anyway, that's, have, that's, that's one guy's opinion. You, know. you must have hated the character Data on Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't really follow that whole series. Well, and, and well, interesting. <laughs> Roddenberry always had a character, uh, and in all the the following following things after him, he always had the character that looked at humanity from the outside. Data was that one. Spock was was that one that you know was usually a Vulcan. It was uh, but Odo on Deep Space Nine, the the non human who wants to be human was always there. Um, right. Uh, he he recognized the value of looking at uh, at the the things that can't be attained. So it's, it's just interesting that you brought that up. He didn't like Data because Data was an artificial. And, and and, you, I mean, 
let's face okay. it, Mark. If you had to guess which one of which side of this conversation Paul's and I would have been on, <laughs> you would have been wrong. Yeah, wouldn't wouldn't affect that. Wouldn't affect that. You know, you'd think that. I mean, being a software engineer, that I'd not be the guy who would be so pro organic and analog and you know original. But it's because I know why I like that organic and analog and original, and I know it's because of the human experience. And I guess maybe in my mind, I'm kind of always in a battle between right and left brain on this stuff. But I like a firewall (laughs) so that one doesn't necessarily take over the other and blur the whole thing out of proportion. All right. That was a fun discussion. Not where I thought it was going to go. I I didn't think we'd be talking about uh, uh, virtual reality and and the saving of the human race. (laughs) But hey, uh, you know, what is a soul? Who knows? I, I wasn't planning to go there. But Seth, tell me what happened this week in history. Okay, this one was new to me. So, April the 11th, 1936, German computer designer Zeus, um, I Zeus, that's his, I think his last name, he files for a patent. Um, German pioneer, um, German computer pioneer Conrad Zeus files for a patent for the automatic execution of calculations, a process he invents while working on what would become the Z1, Germany's first computer. In the patent application, he offers the first discussion of programmable memory using the term combination memory to describe breaking programs down into bit combinations for storage. This is the first device to calculate in binary with translations to decimal. He goes on to build a series of computers, and from 1943 to 1945... The 40s designed the first high-level programming language. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, <laughs> so, plank what? <laughs> Pon cool. Yeah. Okay. So you know it's German. So and I, I can thank my great grandfather for not letting my great grandmother teach German to my grandparents. <laughs> so, darn it. Okay, that happened this week in history. Yeah. Back to you, Mark. And he was the first, and therefore the best, because he did it before anybody else. So his but, code you know, was better. I was, I didn't, I mean, come on, we're America. We invented the computer, right? Well, apparently not. This German guy did it. So, you know, good thing it didn't come a little earlier, or maybe, you know, Germany would have won World War II. So. I, I have no comment on that. Well, that's just a fascinating bit of history. Um, okay, this is the part of the show where I tell you where you can feed back to us. Let us know what you think. Uh, go to elementopi.com, click the contact us button at the top of the page, answer the world's hardest captcha, fill out the form there. And uh, that uh, gets sent to me in the email. It gets priority in my end basket. So I appreciate it. If you do that also, you can uh, dial five, five, nine, I am Opie and uh, leave a vest message on our Google voice account. And we'll play it here on the air. Most likely. Um, or you can send an email to geekrant at elementopi.com. Let us know what you think. Uh, this has been a wide-ranging discussion. Um, I'm sure we've made a lot of people mad uh, on all sides. You know, We've upset the religious and the irreligious, the, uh, the right-brained and the left-brained, the artists and the uh, engineers. So it's, there's uh, equal opportunity to hate on us. So <laughs> let us know what you think, elementopi.com. Now, Seth, what do you have to lower my productivity this week that's making you look like a better hiring option? 
Okay, this one could really do it here. If you go to faceresearch.org slash demos slash famous, there's a list or several different pictures here. You can pick a couple of them and then view your average and it will kind of give you a composite face based on the people you pick. So um, you can log in to get extra images. Um, Anyway, I just thought it was kind of interesting and thought this really has a chance to derail you at work. So... Um, you know, what would happen if you could somehow combine, let's say Lucy Liu and, uh, Orlando Jones, you know, what would their child look like? You click average and it looks kind of like a man in drag. <laughs> so, um, anyway, it's just kind of weird. Go there, click and see, um, see what people's love babies would look like, I guess, for lack of a better way. So this is just taking, basically overlaying their pictures right, and lining up the things that match. That's interesting. There's a, um, the uh, X-Men seem to be overly representative here. Well, yeah, you can, like I said, you can like log in and get access to more than 30 extra images, including the casts of Sherlock and the Avengers. So, um, you know, it's just, I mean, obviously this probably came out about the time because you look at these pictures, um, like a lot of the actresses and actresses I recognize don't quite look like this anymore. Right. So, um, you know, you can tell that some of these pictures are a little old. So anyway, this really has a chance to derail someone because, oh, wait a minute, what would happen if I do this person and this person? And then your manager comes by and says, hey, why don't you do that at home? Here's a box for your stuff. <laughs> so. Um Carl Urban, Hugh Jackman, and Simon Pegg makes a pretty good-looking guy. Just going to say. <laughs> uh, weird, uh, but that's what we count on you for. We count on you for the weird. Um, so uh, that's it. we got nothing else. Um, any other words of wisdom, final words of, of comment or torment from either of you? Not a thing. Uh, don't mm. dig for water behind the outhouse. Okay. <laughs> but you know, somebody had to learn that. That's the, uh, I, anyway, I, I read a, a document, uh, I read a book recently on the history of drinking water. And that was actually a thing. Somebody had to figure out at some point that, uh, if you, if you got water from where you, um, get your, uh, where, where you take a dump, people get sick. But somebody had to figure that out. They were the first and therefore the best the best <laughs> I'll, I'll give you i'll give you a quick saying that will i'll leave you with it's a really really valuable one um the saddest thing in the world is a shelf full of dusty trophies that's all i'll say so dust those trophies people <laughs> <laughs> all right we'll see you next week uh i got nothing else to say um happy easter um bye everybody <laughs> <laughs>